0: following message from pastor kit johnson comes to you from life point baptist church in apple valley california where we pray that god's word is a real blessing to you. Matthew chapter 6. Well, well this morning, uh, we will of course last week I was gone and uh, Dan from what I heard and saw had a wonderful ministry and got to listen to his uh, sunday morning sermon um, Tuesday or Wednesday and did an excellent job. And so uh, we're going to pick up today where we were the, the week before in, in, the Lord, in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this morning, uh, we'll be in verses 9 through 13, which is some of the best-known teaching in all of Scripture and, and certainly among the best-known teaching of Jesus. Uh, we commonly call these verses the Lord's Prayer. And, uh, and if you grew up in church, uh, even if you didn't grow up in church... Uh, you might know this passage really well. Uh, many of us have memorized this passage from years and years ago. And, and you might feel like you know this passage inside and out. I know the Lord's Prayer. I can quote it from heart. Uh, but, but every time I meditate on these five verses, I am amazed and thankful for the depth of what Jesus has given to us here. And the uh, passage has certainly encouraged my heart this week. And uh, even if you know it well, I'm sure that God's spirit has something that he wants to do in you. So for the sake of context, uh, let's pick up reading in the passage we looked at two weeks ago, verse five, and we'll read down through verse 13. Jesus says, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask. In this manner, therefore, pray. Well, last time, uh, two weeks ago, we saw in verses 5 through 8 the, a couple of ideas. First of all, we saw that, that when we pray, our prayers are for God, not for people. So, so we talked about the fact that, that I don't pray to build an image, to impress people. No, instead, when I pray, the goal is to spend time with God, to be with my Father. And then secondly, we saw that when we pray, we must trust God's wisdom and goodness. So, so I don't pray like the heathen, that, that, that their goal in prayer is to convince God to do something better than he already planned to do. We, we don't pray to, to get something from God, to, to change his mind, because God already knows me perfectly. God cares. And every purpose that he has for me is good and right. And so Jesus' instructions in those, in those verses are, are truly profound, and, and really what we have in the Lord's Prayer is an application of the things that Jesus just said in verses five through eight. So, so, so this is a beautiful model of prayer, and today I hope that, that, that we'll do a couple things. First of all, I hope that we will just give thanks for the privilege of Christian prayer which really is different, as we saw a couple weeks ago, from every other type of prayer that is out there. And as well, I hope that we will be motivated to grow our prayer lives, and I hope as well that we will be just a little bit better equipped to enjoy a fruitful, healthy prayer life. But before we get into the details of verses 9 through 13, I want to make four just general observations about these verses. Again, we probably, most of us know these verses well. Uh, but, but just four things to kind of frame our entire discussion of this passage. And so first of all, we need to understand that this is a model prayer versus a required prayer. It's a model prayer versus a required prayer. Now, now I mention this because in a lot of, of Christian traditions, they recite the Lord's Prayer time after time after time. It's, it's a ritual for every Sunday and and maybe even when they're at home, they're going to recite the Lord's Prayer over and over again. And unfortunately, what can so easily happen is that in doing so, they can violate the, the, the warning in verse 7 about vain repetitions. And so the Lord's Prayer, as we oftentimes call it, can become something of a magic formula. You know, a hocus-pocus that if I say these words... God will give me blessing beyond uh, what I would normally expect. But but notice that verse 9 does not say to recite this prayer. So that's not necessarily a bad thing to do if if done appropriately. No, instead it says, pray in this manner. So so I think what we ought to understand is this is more an outline of prayer than it necessarily is a, 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 a magic formula of what to say. So, so we ought to be focused on the concepts that Jesus lays out more than we are on the actual words. And this really is a wonderful outline for prayer if we use it as such. So this is a model prayer. Second general observation is that this is a corporate prayer versus a private prayer. A corporate prayer versus a private prayer. Now, now this is one that, that you might easily miss. But, but notice when, when you look through the prayer prayer, that that all the pronouns are plural instead of singular. So he doesn't say, my father in heaven. He says, our father in heaven. And in verse 11, he doesn't say, give me my daily bread. He says, give us our daily bread. And and the same in verse 12 and the same in verse 13. Now, now that's not to say uh, that you can't use this prayer as a model for your private prayer. In fact, I would encourage you to do that. This this prayer has a lot of application for your private prayers, but but I do think uh, that we just need to recognize that the plurals also tell us that Jesus originally imagined this prayer as a model for our corporate prayer as a church and for the community of the disciples. And the plurals also remind us that Christianity is a community faith and that our prayers together are just as important as our private prayers. You know, so we tend to think of, uh, especially here in America where we are a very individualistic society, that, that my faith is about me and God. But really, we, we li- I like to emphasize often that our faith is just about, as much about us and God as it is about me and God. And so praying and worshiping together is a vital part of our spiritual life. And so, you know, when we pray together as a church, we don't pray together simply as a way to make for a smooth transition from one part of the service to the other. You know, as a way to get the choir up and down from the stage or, or you know, to let, us, let you know that the sermon's done and we're going on to the next thing. No, when we pray together as a church, that is a vital part of our worship. So God expects us to come to Him together. Then the third general observation is that this is a substantive prayer rather than a repetitive one. So again, remember that verse 7 warned us against vain repetitions in prayer. And so we talked two weeks ago about the fact that when the pagans prayed, they, they would generally just repeat small phrases or words over and over. So, so they would say the name of their God over and over, Baal, 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 Baal. Or, or, or they would repeat some, repeat some little phrase you know, over and over and over. Or sometimes they would speak in gibberish and, and, and just you know, mouth, uh, random syllables. And, um, and they did all those things. You know, none of that was thoughtful. It, it was really just an incantation in, in hopes that they could secure something from the gods. But, but that's not what the Lord's Prayer is, is it? No, no in contrast, Jesus models a thought-out, substantive prayer. And, and so therefore, prayer should not be a mindless ritual. No, instead, God wants us to talk to Him like a person. You know, you should talk to God like you would talk to your parents or like you would talk to a good friend. And God wants us to bring Him our burdens. He wants us to talk to Him about the things that matter. So so it's important to emphasize that, that we don't, as Christians, just say our prayers, as is so often said. No, when we pray, we talk to our Heavenly Father about things that matter, and we do so thoughtfully. And then a fourth general observation is that the Lord's Prayer is God-focused versus man-focused. It is God-focused versus man-focused. Now, now, and, I, and I bring this up because remember that verse 5 confronted the Jews for turning prayer into a public spectacle for the purpose of getting them praised. So again, Jesus condemned the hypocrites. Because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. You know, it was all about putting on a show. And that's very different from the God-focused spirit of the Lord's Prayer. This prayer, it has a beautiful simplicity and sincerity that are very important. And so I want to emphasize that prayer is about humbly seeking the Lord. It is never about putting on a show or impressing people. And notice as well that when you look through this prayer, Jesus mentions six requests in the Lord's Prayer. And the first three are entirely focused on God's eternal purpose. So so the first request is, hallowed be your name, or may your name be glorified. Secondly, your kingdom come. And third, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's significant because so often, Our prayers are just consumed with with selfish temporal things. We pray for money. We pray for health. We pray for safety. We pray for politics. And and everything we pray about is is all about this life. But Jesus teaches that a godly heart is not enthralled or, or consumed with simply the things of this world. A godly heart longs to see God be glorified, and to see His eternal will accomplished. And so that is the focus. Now, yes, it's true that the final three requests focus on us, don't they? So the third request, or fourth request is give us this day our daily bread. Fifth request, forgive us our debts. Sixth request, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But isn't it interesting that only one of the six requests is focused on the things that usually take up 80 or 90% of our prayers? He mentions daily bread. So you should pray for for those temporal, physical concerns that you have. But Jesus clearly sets a pattern that that's not what dominates my prayer time. That that instead, I need to be focused on uh, on God's eternal purpose and and on on spiritual warfare and on the glory of God. So so I want to emphasize, pray about everything. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7 say that you should turn every anxiety into a prayer request. So anything that worries your heart, pray about it. Give it to the Lord. But don't forget to keep your focus on the things that truly matter to God. So so with those four things in mind, uh, let's dive into the prayer itself. And I'd like to break our study into three challenges. And the first challenge is that we need to pray reverently to our Father. Pray reverently to our Father. So he begins the prayer by saying, our Father in heaven. Now, now that's a line that that might be easy to skip over, but it is incredibly significant. So a couple things for us to see about this line. First of all, we can rejoice that God is our Father. God is our Father. Now, now if you've grown up in church, you've known the gospel your whole life, that's a concept that, that, that we can just kind of take for granted sometimes. We pray, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father. Sometimes people say Father, 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 fifty times, you know, within the midst of a two-minute prayer. And so we take that word for granted. But Jesus' original audience, to, to Jesus' original audience, this word would have stood out like a sore thumb. And, and that's because the Jews did not typically address God as Father. Now, now yes, it's true that the Old Testament uh, at times compares God to a Father. But, but there are no instances in the Old Testament where God is addressed as Father, where the Jews said, Father. And therefore, one of the commentators I read this week said that Jesus' greatest contribution to Jewish prayer was addressing God as Father. And that's quite a claim to make, that, that this was his fundamental uh, um, addition. But I think he's probably right. That the idea that that I don't just talk to God, I talk to my Father in heaven, it is a glorious thought. And it's certainly worth our meditation. You know, that that again, when I pray, I'm not talking to a genie for whom my wish is his command. You know, prayer is not, you know, putting three bucks into a vending machine, punching C5, and and getting a, a big candy bar. You know, prayer is not doing business with a contractor or a businessman. You know, prayer is fellowship with my Heavenly Father. And we ought to cherish that privilege, and we ought to give thanks for that privilege every time we talk to Him. And, and then we just need to talk to Him as our Father. You know, don't talk to God in the prayer like you talk to that, uh, you know, that, that, that person from you know, Verizon or AT&T on the phone, like, give me what I want and let me get off here as fast as possible. No. We come to our Father with our requests. So don't ever forget that prayer is more about relationship than it is about getting something. So praise the Lord that God is our Father. But a second important truth about this line that we need to miss is not only is God our Father, but our Father is God. He says, Our Father who is in heaven. Now, now that's significant because, you know, young children generally believe that daddy has superpowers, right? You know, daddy is bigger, smarter, faster, stronger than everyone else around. And of course, eventually they figure out that daddy's not that great. Daddy's slow, dumb, and makes lots of mistakes. But you know, not God, right? When our Father in heaven is in heaven. And that reminds us that while he is near to us like a father, He is also set apart from us in heaven. And He is full of glory and majesty. He is almighty. He is God. And so it is right to come to God with the comfort of talking to our Father, but we also better never forget that He is in heaven and we are on earth. And He deserves our reverence, our respect, our worship. He is God. And so it might be that you sit here today and you think about God as our Father and it immediately brings to mind your disappointment in your earthly father. Your your earthly father may may be someone with lots of problems and lots of failures who's who's really let you down. But praise the Lord that, that you don't have to feel that way about God. You can respect Him. You can trust Him. And He will never fail. So don't ever forget that as you pray. That prayer is about worship. Before it is about my need. And so I'd say it's a good discipline. That that when you begin your regular prayer times, and I realize there's times where where, where you are in a crunch and you just need to say, God, help me right now. But in your regular prayer times, discipline yourself. Spend time, first of all, considering who God is. and, and, And considering all of His glory and majesty, praising Him for His wonder before you get to your need. So so we pray reverently to our Father. The second challenge is, is that we pray that God would accomplish His purpose. Pray that God would accomplish His purpose. Now, now notice again that there are six requests in this prayer. And again, as I said a moment ago, the the six requests easily break into two groups of three. So the first three concern God, and the second three concern us. And, And again, that order is intentional, Right? so, So prayer is not like a little kid who goes to Santa Claus, and he really wants these five things. And so he sits down, and he tells the five things he wants, and then asks where his sucker is. That's not what we do in prayer. No, we come to fellowship before we come to get. And I can only think rightly about my needs if I see my needs from the perspective of God's eternal glory and His eternal purpose. So, so, you don't, so, so I want to be clear that you don't always need to follow the structure of the Lord's Prayer. But, but there is a lot of value in regularly beginning your prayer time by praising God and forcefully turning your mind from, from the pressing worries and concerns of this life to God's eternal purpose. So, so, because, because, so, so don't let your, your prayer time just, just regularly turn into you know, God, I need this tomorrow. Help me with this today. Fix this problem. Fix this over here. And it's all just about this world. No, we need to keep the focus that God gives. So, so that being said, the first prayer request is is that God would be glorified. The first request Jesus mentions is hallowed be your name. Now, now that word hallowed it is a rather archaic word. We don't use that in normal everyday language. So it doesn't have anything to do with Halloween frankly, and, and frankly, it, it's almost the opposite of Halloween. Um, no, no, the Greek word here behind the word hallowed is the Greek verb hagiadzo. And it comes from a root uh, that, that means holiness, sanctification. When the New Testament talks about us becoming like Christ, it uses this word. It talks about separateness. So, so therefore, the request is that God's name, which, which in biblical terms Uh, would would be basically synonymous with his nature, his character. The request is is that God's name would be set apart as holy, as different from everything else in this world. Now, of course, God never changes. So so you don't pray that God would become more holy, right? Because God is as holy as he's ever been and as holy as he possibly could be. No, No, rather, the issue is how I see God. It's not that something needs to change in God, it's that something needs to change in me. And something needs to change in the hearts of people all over this world, that we need to see more clearly how glorious God is. We need God's name to be hallowed or revered in our hearts. And first and foremost, we should pray this way because God is worthy of that. God is worthy of your absolute worship, amazement, love, and awe. But I think it's also worth mentioning that that this request is actually the highest expression of neighborly love in the entire Lord's Prayer, because there is nothing that is better for you, and there is nothing that I can pray for you that is more important than that you would see God for His incredible majesty and glory. Now, last week, as I was driving back from Riverside, I was listening to a podcast, and uh, you know, last weekend was the 20th anniversary of of 11 nine eleven, of the of the planes hitting the towers, and and so I was listening to this podcast, and it was a, a recording of, of John Piper. He did a radio interview the day after the planes hit uh, the two towers, and uh, and and many of us remember our, our feelings and the feelings of our country in the days after that. That we were grieving, people were shocked, they were angry, they were just appalled at what had taken place and trying to process it all. And and, and John Piper is talking the day after that happened, and and he said a lot of powerful things uh, in that interview, but, but one thing he said that stood out was he said that as horrible as that tragedy was, God's glory was worth it. Now that's a hard pill to stomach the day after a couple thousand people died. But the reality is, is that God's glory is worth it. There is nothing on earth that is more valuable, more important, a higher priority, than that we see God as He really is. And our only hope for true joy, rest, satisfaction, and salvation is to see God in, in His full glory. So, so we should pray that God would be glorified more and more in our own hearts, and we should pray that God would be glorified to the ends of the earth. So pray that God would be glorified. Second request, pray that God would establish his kingdom. The second request Jesus mentions is, your kingdom come. Now, this request is one that that is oftentimes misunderstood because there's a uh, a lot of confusion about what the kingdom is. But but for Jesus' Jewish audience, when they heard him pray, your kingdom come, they would have only thought of one thing. And that is, they would have thought of the earthly kingdom that God had promised to the nation of Israel. So, so God had told them, or it's the kingdom that, that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and were kicked out of Eden. It's the kingdom that the, the, the Israel's kings tried to establish, the righteous kingdom they tried to establish, but never could because of their sin and the sins of the nation. It's the kingdom that God promised David that Messiah would one day establish. And the book of Revelation tells us that someday Jesus will return in glory. He will crush every enemy. And he will establish a perfect kingdom in which righteousness and justice reign. And it's not just that he's going to save sinners. The Bible tells us that he is going to reconcile all things to himself. So Jesus will will restore the original beauty and order of creation and he will reign in a perfect kingdom where there is no sorrow, no suffering, and no pain. And it's going to be glorious, isn't it? When Christ comes and when Christ reigns. And and, and so Jesus says that we should pray that this kingdom would come soon. We want him to come back. So, So we should not be at home in this world. No, we should have a holy discontentment that that we want Jesus to come and fix all that is wrong. And because we long for that kingdom to come, we pray, your kingdom come. Now, now you might wonder, well, why do we need to pray this? Because hasn't God already determined when he's going to establish his kingdom? Well, uh, it was interesting that Gary mentioned this in his prayer because I have it in my notes that 2 Peter 3 verse 12 commands us to look for and hasten the coming day of the Lord. And so we talked this spring when I preached through 2 Peter about the fact that, that God tells us in his word that one of the ways that he has determined in his sovereignty when Christ will return is through our prayers and through our evangelism. And when I share the gospel and when I pray for Christ to come back, that is part of the means that God has established to hasten the return of Jesus. That's incredible, isn't it? Doesn't that make you want to pray? Your kingdom come? I want him to come tomorrow or today. And as we pray that prayer, it's not just that we hasten the return of Christ. The Bible also teaches that our hearts will be turned from the passions of this world to the passions of the next. So we ought to pray. You ought to be praying. Jesus, please come soon. Please bring your kingdom to earth and fix all that is broken. And then the third request is we should pray that God would accomplish his will. So verse 11, or excuse me, verse 10 ends by saying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I should mention here that that Jesus is not talking about his sovereign decreed will. Because God's sovereign purpose is accomplished just as much on earth as it is in heaven. So so the will that he is talking about here is his moral will as revealed in Scripture. Of course, in heaven, everything is righteous. Everything is perfect. Everyone perfectly obeys the will of God in heaven. But we all understand that it doesn't happen that way down here, does it? We live in a world that is filled with sin, and, and, and it should grieve our hearts, to think about the millions of babies that are aborted in our country, to think about uh, what is happening through the sexual revolution, the lying, the evils, all the the violence, and and, and many other things in our world. And, And it should bother us. But of course, more than we are bothered by everything that's going on out there, we should be bothered by what's going on right here in me. I'm a sinner. I rebel against God's word. I do not do God's will the way it is done in heaven. And that should grieve me. And therefore, especially considering the emphasis on practical righteousness that that really extends throughout this entire sermon, Jesus is saying that we should pray that righteousness would reign in the earth. We We should pray. God, save sinners. Turn them from darkness to light turn their hearts towards you, that they would follow you and obey you. We should pray for politicians and leaders that they would perform righteousness, not that they would do what is simply convenient for them, what, what they want or what is popular and will keep them in power. We should long for and pray that God's will would be done on earth the same way it's done in heaven. Of course, that will not fully happen until Christ comes back and establishes His righteous kingdom. And and so we should, so this request is closely tied to the previous one. That that as we pray that Christ's kingdom would come, you know, we pray that that his will would be done. So so we don't just want the kingdom to come so so that life will be easier and, and, and so that we will rule and reign and have everything comfortable. No, we long for righteousness to be in the earth, for God to be glorified, and for his purposes. To be accomplished. So I wonder, do these requests reflect your heart? And do you live every day with a clear vision and hope for the return of Christ? You are not at home in this world. You long for the return of Jesus and for the righteousness that he will bring. I and mean, do you pray passionately that God would be glorified in the earth God, may may you come again, and Lord, may your will be established in this world just as it is in heaven. Folks, these are the the cries of a godly heart, and they are things that that we ought to be regularly praying as we seek the Lord. So so we need to pray um, that, that God would accomplish His purpose in the earth. And then the third and final challenge is pray that God would meet your needs. Pray that God would meet your needs. And so in verses 11 through 13, Jesus concludes with three requests for myself. And so I heard someone this week on a sermon give a good outline that he should pray for provision, pardon, and protection. So, uh, so I'm going I'm to borrow his outline. So, so we should pray first of all for God's provision. Verse 11 says, Give us this day our daily bread. Now, now daily bread is, is a concept that, that, that it is kind of hard for us to comprehend. Because most of us don't live day to day, and we've got far more food in our house than we need for another day. You know, just a few months ago, um, my grandma, oh, my uncle, was digging through my grandma's freezer, and she found a gallon of popcorn that I had shelled for my grandma in 1998. Now, incredibly, it was still good. But what's even more incredible... Is that it had been in the back of her freezer for 23 years, and she didn't know it was there. And maybe you've got stuff back, at, you know, back in a corner somewhere that you've had a long time. You know, we have lots of food. We have no concept of, of, of as many of the ancient peoples did of of, of really being dependent on God for daily food. But but even though we have such abundance, we should never take it for granted. We should humbly recognize. That at any moment, we could lose our food, we could lose our health, our safety. we, We could lose our homes and many other things. And every blessing I enjoy is a gift of God's grace. And so we need to give thanks for everything that God has provided. That's why it is a good discipline to give thanks before your meals is because it reminds you that every gift is from God's hand. And we need to daily acknowledge just how dependent we are. Like, like praying for God to supply your food for today is a reminder that it's not me that supplies my food, it is God. And, and even if you're not anxious about food, money, or bills, pray as a way to acknowledge your dependence on God. And if you are anxious, you know, maybe, maybe I'm saying all this and you're like, ah, it's not me. Like, I really don't know. God is going to provide for my mortgage or how I'm going to pay my electric bill or how I'm going to put food on the table, then then remember that that more than, than you need to sit there and anxiously stew about fixing it, more than you need to run all over trying to fix your problems, you need to pray and trust that God will provide. And I think it's that we have to mention the admonition related to this that follows in verses 25 and 26. So do not worry. Trust in the goodness of God. And then the second request he makes for ourselves is that we should pray for God's pardon. God's pardon. So verse 12 says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now now verses 14 and 15 expand on that second idea of forgiving our debtors. And so I'm going to hold off on that idea until next week. So today I just want to focus on the request there at the beginning of verse 12, Lord, forgive us our debts. Now that word debt, uh, the Greek word that's that's translated there, was, was originally a commercial word or a financial term. And that's a good picture because it pictures for us our sin as a debt that we owe to God. And that's a really helpful picture because we all tend to minimize and forget our sin but a holy God cannot just forget that we sinned. No, our sin breaks fellowship with God. And I do want to emphasize that that's true, not just for the unbeliever, it's true for us, right? Because because the Lord's Prayer is not a prayer of salvation. It's a prayer for Christians. So Jesus is telling Christians to pray that God would forgive us our debts. So so it's true, all right? And we need, to, we need to see that, frame that with the fact that, that if you are saved, you are justified in Christ, all right? And, and all of your guilt has been covered and all your condemnation is, is removed through the cross of Jesus. So, so, so my judicial standing with God is forever settled. My sin is as far away as the East is from the West, as, from a judicial perspective. But that doesn't mean that my sin can't affect my fellowship with God. I think a good parallel is to think about my relationship with my kids and maybe your relationship with your kids or your parents or your spouse. That my kids will always be my kids. And no matter how they may sin against me, I will always love them. That will never change. But the reality is, is that very often, their sin and my sin affects our Fellowship. And um, it doesn't change the fact that they're my children, but it does affect our relationship. And the only way for for that fellowship to be fully restored is through repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And our relationship with God is the same way. That, that, That you cannot disobey God's will, live in rebellion against what He has said, and think that God just turns a blind eye and doesn't care. Now, Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So if I am living in rebellion against God, God does not listen to my prayers until I come with a broken heart. And James 4 says that the only way I can draw near to God is if I come with a pure, repentant heart. So so I want to challenge you that that when the Spirit convicts you of sin, you 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 lose your temper with your kids or or you tell a lie that, that your immediate thought, your immediate reaction is to say, God, forgive me for that. That was a sin against your will. Please forgive me. I rebelled against you. And I think as well, a good discipline of your regular prayer times is that when you have your regular prayer time that you stop and you ask yourself, is there any sin that I need to confess to the Lord? And maybe think back since your last prayer time. How did I break God's Word? And the Spirit, as the Spirit brings things to your mind and says, you did that, you did that, that you say, God, forgive me. And you pray, even Psalm 139, search me and know me, that the Lord would reveal those things to you. So, 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 so ask for forgiveness, That's what Jesus is telling us to do. And and when you do ask for forgiveness, then rest in the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So pray for God's pardon. And then third, pray for God's protection. And so verse 13 says, uh, the, the request is, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, now, I want to say very clearly at the outset here that God never leads His children into temptation, right? So James 1.13 says that God cannot be tempted by sin and He does not tempt any man. So, so we ought to understand this request as, as simply a cry of a godly heart. A, a godly heart, in, in the words of chapter 5, verse 6, hungers and thirsts for righteousness, But he also, a godly heart, understands the weakness of our own hearts. We are to be confident in the Spirit, but suspicious of ourselves. And as such, godly people don't walk uh, on the edge uh, of the spiritual cliff of failure. You know, we, we don't live right here. Like, how close can I get to rebellion and not fall off the edge? You know, a Christian hates his sin. Wants nothing to do with his sin and stays as far away from the cliff as possible. And therefore they pray, God, keep me from temptation. And when temptation